Hello again, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each week we bring you a new interview with one of Hollywood's top directors conducted by one of their peers. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash The Director's Cut. Just in time for the Super Bowl, this episode takes us behind the scenes of pro football with director Peter Landisman's latest feature, Concussion. The film follows the true story of Dr. Bennett Omalu, an accomplished neuropathologist who discovers the degenerative brain disease caused by repeated blows to the head that several pro football players were diagnosed with after their deaths. Armed with this devastating information, Omalu, played by Will Smith, fights for the truth to be known despite the powerful influence of the NFL. Mr. Landisman spoke about the challenges of directing this story with director Boaz Yakin following the Los Angeles screening of the film. Listen on for highlights from their conversation. Enjoy. Hi, Peter. Thank you for making such a powerful movie. And, uh, I'm convinced I was asked to moderate this, to teach me a lesson for making a movie uh, glorifying high school football uh, back in the day. But um, uh, yeah, you know, since it's, it's the DGA, instead of jumping right into talking about the movie, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself first. Like, <laughs> like how'd you get into all this? How, how, like, how, did, you, how did you get into making movies and, and how'd you get into yeah, being yeah, interested uh, about it? Yeah, directing in a lot of ways my fifth career. Uh, my made my first movie. I was forty-seven. Um, this is my second. You know, uh, I was a painter since I was twelve, and I became a writer very quickly after that. And in a lot of ways, filmmaking, you know, was closing the circle from uh, going back to what I began as a painter. You know, I, I became a writer, a novelist <clears throat> for a number of years, and then uh, an investigative journalist for the New York Times Magazine and a war correspondent. Really spent twelve years traveling the globe figuring out, looking for narratives where there didn't seem to be any. Just, you know, blank canvases of conflict and derision and pain and then finding stories there. And then started getting really interested in figuring out the way things moved in trafficking networks and crime syndicates. And then those stories started getting optioned to LA and Hollywood and I started writing and I started writing movies and then figuring out a way back to painting. And that's how I started directing. Wow, um, how, so painting is, is a completely a different kind of take on it. How how did you get interested in sort of investigative journalism? Like, what drew you to that kind of adventurous? You know, take it, fi on it finds you. It's. Um, did you it's, go to school for journal? Like, no, I'm convinced that if I'd gone to journalism school, I never would have become a journalist. <laughs> if I'd gone to film school, I know I would never have become a director. I was uh, just an iconoclast. I was a contrarian in that way. You know, it found me. I didn't know how to explain it. You know, when I was a novelist, even the novels I wrote were based on real stories. And the first novel was based on a story I heard at my kitchen table when I was 26. And I packed the next day and moved to Maine for a year to live in a lobster village and work in a paper mill investigating what life was like in rural Maine in the 50s, which is when the novel was set because the story was set there. And it was just very instinctive to me to get obsessed by almost like being bit by a by the right vampire, we, uh, you know, it, by, if the vampire were a story. And I just love total immersion, you know, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, and just vanishing, getting on a plane and just disappearing, coming back with the goods. 
and uh, and the films I write have written so far have pretty much followed the same pattern. Have all have most of the films you've written dealt with what you'd call it true stories or issue issue type situations? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, the first the first real screenplay I wrote was called Who Killed Daniel Pearl. I knew Danny in Kosovo when we were reporting together, and I knew him again in Pakistan after 9/11. And then after he was kidnapped and murdered, I came back and I found myself adapting Bernard Henri Levy's book, Who Killed Daniel Pearl. It was very strange. I was writing about a man who I'd just seen a year ago and beheaded. He was really the first one to have begun this spate of, you know, incomprehensible barbarities that we're now seeing all the time. Um, and, you know, from then on, it was, you know, one screenplay after another based on, and I, these are just the things that I love. You know, I don't think, there was no plan. There's no, I would I'd be happy to write you know, a work of fiction, if a work of fiction interested me. Mm -hmm. So, so, what was it that that brought you into this subject matter and, and kind of caught your imagination? So, I have a, uh, I have a penchant for whistleblower stories. I love Lone Wolf, Man Against Machine, David vs. Goliath. It's just a narrative that I groove on. And um, I wrote a movie a couple years ago called Kill the Messenger. It came out last year. And, and uh, I wrote a movie eight years ago that I'm shooting next called Felt, which was about Mark Felt, who was Deep Throat and Watergate. And again, a whistleblower, you know, man against the machine, man in the shadows coming out to tell the truth. But it wasn't until I met Bennett Amalu that I found the perfect David versus Goliath, the perfect David, joyful, optimistic, truthful, spiritual, like I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop with Bennett. I kept waiting to figure out that he was some kind of weird, I mean, he is a little weird. I mean, he speaks to the dead, let's face it, it's strange. Um, you know, and I attended a number of his autopsies and he goes on this long dialogue with these corpses on the slab because he feels like it's his intent and his job to usher them through purgatory and in purgatory is where your stories are left untold you know how did you die what brought you here why are you lying here before me he felt like it was his mission to figure that out and you couldn't rise until he'd done it so he and he was a real christian he was a real spiritual being so he really believed in it and uh, and the more i got to know him and then i understood this music and he sang and he listened to motown while he was dissembling these bodies. And um, and I didn't know whether to be appalled or completely <laughs> enthused and mesmerized, I think a little of both. And you know, Will felt the same. And I remember the first autopsy I took Will to, he was looking at, he couldn't even understand what he was looking at. First of all, he couldn't take his eyes away from the obvious, the body, you know, and what was happening to it. But then he was watching Bennett, who was completely clean. You know, autopsy chambers are like butcher shops. There's blood, there's body parts, it's just a mess. And Bennett's table is just pristine. It's incredible, yeah. So, but um, did you come to it through learning about this character or the football aspect? In yeah, other so. Words, the issue of it or the character? So Ridley, Ridley Scott had optioned um, this GQ article that was about Bennett, but the article came out in 2009 with a whimper. You know, uh, six years ago, this issue, this concussion stuff that we're finding on the newspaper, front pages of the newspaper everywhere, it wasn't the zeitgeist at all, people didn't care. And, you know, there was always a silent epidemic that I was kind of paying attention to. I remember when Dave Dewerson died. I remember Junior Seau, obviously. And before that, um, you know, in Pittsburgh, you know, in the movie it says 12. The true number of Pittsburgh Steelers from that team was 18 men who died in strange, unspeakable circumstances. They just withdrew. They vanished. They killed themselves. They killed others. Maybe because they were living in Pittsburgh. <laughs> I, you know, Pittsburgh gets a bad rap. I love Pittsburgh. I love shooting this movie in Pittsburgh. Great Italian food in Pittsburgh. 
And, uh, uh, but no one was synthesizing what was a silent epidemic and putting it under one roof, and the roof being Bennett, because Bennett figured out what it was. And they, cr they crushed him. And you know they crushed him in silence and in, in, in uh, invisibility. He vanished. He went to Lodi, which is where he ends this movie. And uh, it wasn't until I got the article and met Bennett that I realized, you know, in journalism, we have what's called the holy sh moment. When you're fishing around and swimming around a swamp or a jungle of a story, and then you arrive at what the story is really about, and that's when you say to yourself, holy shit, I have the story. And when I met Bennett, I had that moment about this, and I thought, this wasn't just important, but it was just a good movie because his story, you know, the immigrant thing, the, the, the spirituality, his journey, his not even knowing what a football player was, what a center was, it was perfect. Pittsburgh, I mean, the most American in football of cities, you really couldn't, I mean, I couldn't have made this up. Um, I, the, I, I, we'll get into some of the, the specifics about filmmaking and so on, but being that this is a true story, one of the things that I, I'm just curious about and impressed by is that, you know, uh, Sometimes when you're watching movies that are based on real life things, but there's legal issues, can drive you crazy. Like I remember any given Sunday, I mean the worst that they did was have some sex parties, but they had to change the football teams to like the New York Boogaloos. And it just, and you're like, they, they call it Earth Two, you know, or whatever. But here you have the NFL and they're like Darth Vader and, you know, and, and yet you got the logo and the teams and everything. How did, how did you swing that? We didn't swing it, we just did it. Um, uh, we didn't ask permission. Um, we knew we weren't gonna get, obviously, the opportunity to license logos, teams, faces. Um, originally, when I scheduled the movie and boarded it, um, I scheduled a lot of football, shooting a lot of football. Uh, basically, all the footage that you saw, I had boarded a scene where I was going to cast football players, and then I realized if I did that, I'd concuss all my actors, and I didn't think that was a good idea in a movie about concussions. Uh, and also wouldn't have been as beautiful or interesting. And, you know, the one thing I, I wanted to say is I love football. I played football through two years of college, and the grace and the power of it, all that's real. And I think that the movie embraces what's also beautiful and elegant about football. And I didn't want to mess that up. I wanted to, you know, really put that on screen. And, you know, the studio who made this movie, Sony, they're the only studio in town who could have made it and distributed it. Every other studio has broadcast relationships with the NFL. Sony doesn't. So they were free, essentially, to thumb their nose and wiggle their fingers and do whatever they wanted to do, and which is kind of what we did. And um, we just, you know, it's fair, you're, we're protected by fair use. If it's a nonfiction story about a public health issue, um, you know, we're, per, we're permitted, we're protected to do it. So in the realistic world of, of movie making, I mean, was it, was it because Will Smith got involved that the project was able to move forward? Or it's, it's a, these days it's getting harder and harder to make movies, feature films anyway, um, that are subject driven and that aren't, you know, the, the kind of tentpole type thing. So, so what was the process? What, what was needed to get something like this over the top? You know, um, this, is, this movie has a very strange process, I'll tell you why. From the moment Ridley and I first sat down, it was New Year's Eve 2013. That was the first meeting we had. That's fast, by the way. Wow. And then we, went to see, then we went to see Amy Pascal three weeks later. And, you know, and uh, she, she bought it in the room. A couple weeks after that, I started working on the screenplay, so let's call it early March. By May, we had a finished first draft. Will got it by the beginning of June. The day after that, we had a greenlit movie. And we were in Pittsburgh shooting by August. 
So <clears throat> that was all in the same year. And that never happened. I doubt that happened to everybody else in the room. It certainly never happened to me again. It'll never happen like that again. So this process, this movie, you know, to me, when I was writing it and then making it and casting it, it felt like it had incredible wind in its sails. I think, I think this is just a story, the issue, it's a story that just wanted to get told really badly. And Will, you know, Will's a remarkable actor, but he's also, um, he's a football dad, and his kid played serious football. And he loved the script and he loved the character, but he really didn't want to make this movie. And um, it just was antithetical to a lot of what he stood for and loved and didn't want to believe it. And, and you know, when I introduced him to Bennett, you know, it became undeniable for him. So there was, there, it wasn't a lot of sturming drung. There wasn't a lot of hand-wringing with this. It, it was a very smooth process from inception to, uh, to uh, being on location. Well, when you say, so let me follow up with a question that kind of reflects the content of, of the movie, which is when you say Will didn't want to make it, didn't want to believe it. I mean, th there's part of me that's like, of course people are going to get hurt when they're playing football. They hit their heads. That's what happens when people hit their heads. I mean, and it's like not this big, oh my God. Like, why, why is it so hard for people to believe it? And why is it even controversial in a way? Like, like what and, and what do you expect or what were you hoping for people to take away because no one's going to stop playing football in a country as you say here where it's you know taken first place on religion in a lot of ways so in a way i mean what's what's to be achieved what what can happen in this particular <coughs> kind of knowledge coming out well it's a that's a really good question um let me put it to you this way when i was growing up if in the, in the 70s and 80s and somewhat in the early 90s, if you were to ask me, I could tell you the name of every champion in every weight class in boxing. Today, I couldn't tell you one. You know, boxing has withdrawn in many ways as a popular sport and as a spectacle. The NFL, NFL football, is the largest spectacle maybe in the history of man. It is a juggernaut as a business, as an industry. And, but more than that, it has this part of this cultural fabric of like Rockwellian America. It's the Cowboys on Thanksgiving. It's the Lions on Christmas. It's, we now associate NFL football with a lot of our interior domestic lives. So it's more than a sport. It's, a, it's become American culture. And I think that you know, uh, you know, the masculinity and the helmets and the pads and, you know, Fox TV and the martial music. It's so American. It's like it's it's uh, it's almost a metaphor. <clears throat> the problem is that it's it's heading for the cliff. And what we've never seen before is something in what sense? Well, we've something that much of a spectacle with that much of a foothold in a in a, in a national culture coming face to face with something that that actually could could bring it to its knees. And um, the, the other analogy is, is, is smoking. You know, for many years in the 40s and 50s, pregnant women smoking, no one had any sense that it could kill mothers and children, people in a room. Um, the, the, the process by which football players are withdrawing and dying, um, you know, they know they could break a leg, as he as says in the, in the, in the film. Um, you know you could get damaged, but the idea of withdrawing and withering in a kind of really terrible end was complete fiction, it was a fantasy. It was a terrible nightmare. The fact is, it's desperately true. And more football players, the, the number at the end of the movie, 28%, is actually quite low. So what's to be known and what, what you, I see you're kind of asking what the big deal is. The big, the big deal is most of the men who play professional football from high school through college, through, uh, through uh, the professional game, 
are going to have cognitive problems and you know and maybe suicidal ends just like these men did well and so do you believe that in a way what you're what you want them to do is to basic not when i say them i mean the league or whatever to sort of say hey this can happen to you now do you want to play or to actually stop the game itself no 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 uh, you know look i i don't i don't believe in a writer or a director or a storyteller setting out uh, holding on to consequences you know those kind of agendas are dangerous because then you become an advocate and advocacy is boring you know we're in the we're in the business of storytelling and and really you know is the dirty word entertainment i mean this is a movie that's it was very expensive and we hope to make the money back so no that's not our intent you know as a storyteller i didn't wag my finger i don't judge but what i do say now is yes now you know and as parents as we put our kids in pop warner football now you know now it's incumbent upon you to make a decision about what you're going to do with your child or yourself as you're a little older i can tell you <clears throat> Since the beginning of this movie, um, the process, it's been in the news. Pop Warner football, which is Little League football for five, six, seven-year-olds, is down 35% this year. And, you know, that, it, that's the only number that really matters. I mean, this is just common sense. Down 35% this year, let's assume same next year, maybe a little bit more. After this movie comes out, it's a little bit, little bit more in the zeitgeist. You travel that number upwards. You follow that number through high school, through college, through the pros. Those, all those kids are not playing football. So the John Elways, the Peyton Mannings, the Eli Mannings, they're gonna be playing baseball. They're just not gonna be playing this game. So, and 15 years hence, NFL football, big time professional football, is gonna look very vastly different. Oh, like it'll be only the very poorest, most desperate playing football well you know look point. i think there's a you know i don't know i mean again we don't we've never been in this cultural situation before but i can say that it, it feels like the military mm -hmm. it feels like whereas before where everyone played because everyone got drafted now there's a different kind of population that plays those who want to or need to or calling for, for the gladiatorial games yeah i think it's i think it's a really interesting question we've never really faced it before interesting and um so so on, on a, as a director like going back to, to the actual process second movie working um on a level this large and, and a scale this large and working with actors with this much experience and and uh and egos and characters and all that kind of stuff how did you feel how how was that um be honest with us <laughs> in front of 200 of my closest friends i remember <laughs> what it was like being 30 years old and trying to direct denzel washington in a movie and like going, this is what it feels like when your legs are water and you can't stand up. You know, it was terrifying. So. You know, um, a couple of different answers about that. One is, you know, because I came to directing as a fully formed adult, um, after being a war correspondent and a journalist, spending a lot of time with heads of state and murderers and soldiers and rebels, and <clears throat> uh, the rattle factor for me was non-existent. Um, it, uh, I remember the very first scene I shot of, the, of my first movie, Parkland, a couple years ago, had Paul Giamatti, Billy Bob Thornton, and Marsha Gay Harden, right? Not too bad. And it, was my, uh, and it was my first scene, and a couple hours in, I realized, you know, I was directing a movie. And I had this realization. I was on the grassy knoll, actually, in Dallas. The Parkland was about the JFK assassination. And I realized that my relationship to my cast was a relationship that I already had. Meaning, when I was an investigative journalist, my relationship to the source, my sources, was in front of me was someone who may not know what they had, 
who may have known what they had to give but didn't want to give it, who may have wanted to give me too much information. And I realized that my relationship with my actors was the exact same relationship I had with, with an investigative source who did or did not want to speak with me. So that dynamic, that social dynamic, I've been doing it for years. And in terms of the frame, that goes back to when I was 12 and painting. That was, that was the most organic, frankly, the most interesting part for me. And uh, so the process felt like a, just the back half of a very long continuum that I began when I was 12. Well, and painting is obviously, it's, a, it's I mean, you're not static when you're painting, but the medium itself is static. And movies deal with timing and, and flow and all that stuff. How, how did you, how did you get like, how did you get into that? Like when you're preparing to do it, like what's your, I know there are a lot of different ways of getting into it. You know, some people storyboard, shot list everything. Some people kind of get there with a vague idea and figure it out with the DP at the moment. Like how did you find coming from painting that you attack the scene or approach the scene? I mean, the painting gave me the sense of frame and proportion and symmetry and also the, the courage. You know, when I, was, when I was working on a painting, for instance, and um, I lost sight of it because I've been working on it for a long time. What I did was I would turn it upside down and step away from it. And it went from being something I was overly familiar with to a complete abstraction. And I could tell, was it balanced? How is the color? How is the palette? How is the tone? How is the vibe of, of, the, of the square or the rectangle? It was no longer a literal picture. And uh, I felt the same. I just felt very comfortable asking actors to try different things. Um, I, tried, I tried desperately to over-prepare. I tried to storyboard both the movies I made. I tried desperately to come up with shot lists. And I went in, and by minute three, it was all out the window. Minute and three on set? You mean when minute you three within set. a scene. It just, it was, this is not how I worked. And um, what I loved is uh, I, I, I don't know how a scene develops for me until I step onto a location, onto a set, you know, before crew. Before they get, before actors get there, before cast gets there, I just wanted to understand the space I was in. And then they show up, and then it all kind of reveals to me, and then via performance, which is something you can't anticipate, right? There's the words you write, the words I wrote. There's the location that I approved, the set that I, the set design that I approved. But not until they show up with their performance, which is, which is something they may or may not planned, that you can't anticipate any of that. So just allowing it to kind of uh, to ruminate and germinate. And um, the DP on the movie is a really terrific DP. He's made a lot of really great movies and shot like what was like what was your guys process um, like in terms of how you approach things you know uh, I had two very different uh, DP experiences on Parkland I worked with Barry Aykroyd who's just a master and Barry is a master of, of sort of a verite style of taking uh, someone and immersing you in an experience it feels very fluid it feels real it's all on the shoulder it's all within movement and, uh, and there's nothing static, everything. And it drove my script supervisor absolutely crazy. She gave up after the third day because there's just no coverage. There's just no coverage. You know, with this movie, I wanted to shoot it like a political thriller, mm -hmm. and which means stillness and shadow and light and more, paying more attention to silhouette, more attention, really more design shots. Sal Tatino is really wonderful in that sense and really solid. He does all of Ron Howard's movies. Um, Frost Nixon, which was fantastic. Uh, and so he and I had a, a more of a groove sense of less improvisation when it came to the frame. He was much less on the shoulder. We were more, you know, much more in dollies. Um, uh, we were on stage a lot, so it was a lot of controlled light. Uh, 
uh, it was a very different process. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I hope these are questions that's very interesting to me. Uh, as, as some, uh, do, do, would you like the audience to ask a few questions? Okay, let's do it. Turn it over to the audience. What was left on the cutting room floor? Well, my assembly was almost four hours, <clears throat> so half the movie. <laughs> um, it's actually a really interesting question. Um, uh, there is there is an element to this story that is so unbelievable, and I shot it, I wrote it, I shot it, I aborted it, and I threw it all out because it was too good to be true. Benedict Malu, <clears throat> when he was going on his discovery after he discovered his disease, in the original version of this film, went to Louisville, Kentucky to visit his first cousin who he had actually immigrated to the United States with. And his first cousin was a gentleman named uh, Amobi Okoya, and he was 320 pounds and the starting right tackle for the Louisville football team. So his first cousin then went on to become the youngest person ever drafted into the NFL at 19 years old. And, uh, and when, after Bennett discovered CTE, he went to his cousin and begged him to stop playing. And his cousin actually represented this sort of very perfect counterpoint. He said, I was just given a check for a million dollars. I'm 19 years old. Like you, I grew up in rural Nigeria, and you're asking me to stop. And there we go with the counterpoint, right, which is why most, why most people would say they, they play professional sports. It was a beautiful series of scenes. It was three incredible scenes. Will was magnificent. And I showed the movie to people, and they just didn't believe it. it was, in fact, it was the only thing they accused me of making up. And, and, it's, and it really distracted people, and it sort of slowed the movie down, but it, it was so distracting that in the end of the day, it wasn't worth keeping in the movie. It really bothered people. It seemed too perfect. So that's not in the movie. Um, and, then the, uh, and, then, um, and then just a lot of shit that wasn't very good, <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah, again, I wish, I mean, this love story was really perfect. They met in exactly that way. She was exactly that way. They. They, it was their relationship in the beginning was a business agreement. You know, she was going to help him discover this thing and support him, and he was going to get her through. You know, the beginning. I mean, it was really a, a beautiful. And then it was almost like My Fair Lady. Then they re, then they conjoined and they fell in love. And then they then this disease became their mission. And then they got pregnant. And he was building the dream house, and it was this American dream. And then it all fucking came apart. And it's all real. And, uh, and she's a beautiful woman. I mean, she's lovely, and they now have two kids, and he finally got her her dream house. And okay, it's Lodi, but it's not Pittsburgh. <laughs> um, so that was very real to me, and I cast Gugu because to me, Will and Gugu are just a fairy tale. They're just amazing together, looking together. And then the, the, the score is James Newton Howard, who's just, you know, it's the Mozart of, uh, of movie scores. He's fantastic and beautiful. Worked with him before. I, uh, I just got the I just got the sign that we only have a few minutes left. So I just want to ask one last question because it it definitely intrigued me um, in the story. When the FBI comes in and gives him problems and all that, you leave it elliptical to a degree. I mean, was that I mean, does the FBI care about what happens in the NFL? Like that that's fascinating. So if you can elaborate on that a little yeah. bit, it'd be interesting. The FBI was a collision between two things that were happening simultaneously. Um, and it wasn't national FBI. You know, Pittsburgh is a very parochial, a small little town. And you know, football in, in Pittsburgh is religion. It's the Catholic Church. 
as Albert Brooks said. Um, so the local FBI agents were out for two reasons. Um, Cyril Wecht, who play, was played by Albert, was, uh, I don't know if you know who Cyril is. Cyril is a very controversial, fascinating figure, but he's also very troublesome and has a lot of political enemies. He, uh, he's a sort of celebrity forensic pathologist. So the, he was hired by one of the parties in the John Benet Ramsey case, the O.J. Simpson case, JFK, uh, a lot of famous murders he often goes in after the fact and solves. And he's also brash and he's also Jewish. And Jews in Pittsburgh, again, are, um, you know, talk about David versus Goliath. And so Cyril had a lot of enemies. So they were working with him separately and they managed to conjoin the process of getting Ben and Amalu out of town because they, all this was happening at the same time. And they did, in fact, get Bennett to um, force Bennett to, they tried to force Bennett to testify against Wecht. It was a disgusting, horrible affair. Interesting. Fascinating. That's what you want to end on? That is what I really? wanted to know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's because it was hinted at a whole sea of things. Okay. Um, so I think that's it for us. Okay. Um, Thanks, everybody. Thank Thanks so for much. coming out on Saturday night. We hope you enjoyed listening. You can watch a video of this and many other director Q&As on YouTube or on our website at dga.org slash crafts slash director hyphen QA. If you're enjoying the director's cut, please subscribe to it on iTunes or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. Over the next few weeks, we will have interviews covering several more Oscar-nominated films, so be sure to check them out as they arrive. We hope you hear from us soon. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.